Well, we're continuing our series on uh, the thread. There is one common theme that goes through all the scripture, and it is... Look forward to Jesus. Jesus. Come on, say it. All right, Old and New Testament, all 66 books do that. And uh, we've been doing some hand motions to help you remember that. We'll do that again next week. But I thought we'd take a break from that. And instead, I'm going to do a little fun game that I've done before. Uh, It's after a book I wrote a few years ago that was a game I had with our kids when we were growing up. They were growing up called Who Am I? And uh, there's over 70 Bible characters in here. I started the game because I wanted my kids, our kids, to know who's who in the Bible and kind of the story of Scripture. And so actually after I wrote it, I told Joyce, I said, you know, if an adult got this and read this, they would understand the flow of the Bible. Uh, I've had parents thank me, grandparents, uh, their kids love it. But anyways, we're going to play this game, and here's what the game is. I'm going to read for you some clues, and you try to guess who we're talking about. Would you repeat after me? Don't say it out loud. So when you get the answer, just raise your hand, okay? So first clue, I love to study the law of God and to practice and teach it to the people. Who am I? Okay. Second one, you were in first service, though. (laughs) Second one, King Cyrus of Persia overthrew the Babylonians after they conquered the nation of Judah. The Bible says God stirred King Cyrus's heart to rebuild a house for the Lord in Jerusalem. I was a priest during this time. Who am I? Well, that's a dead giveaway, right? Yeah, a few of you know, <clears throat> being sarcastic there. A man named Zerubbabel led the first return of Jews from the old Babylonian Empire to Jerusalem. Almost 50,000 people went, and they took supplies to rebuild the temple. I went to Jerusalem after the temple was completed. Who am I? Okay, if you haven't got it by now, you're probably, I'll give you one more, but we're probably not getting it. Don't feel bad. Saturday night didn't get it either, right? As Zerubbabel built the temple, I went to Jerusalem to help rebuild the people spiritually. Now you remember. Say Ezra. All right. If you didn't get it, it's Ezra. And uh, you're you're still like, who's Ezra, (laughs) right? Uh, There's a biography about the person. There are conversation points because lots of parents don't know how to talk about the Bible with their kids. Then there's a coloring page. So we're not selling these today, but you can go to Amazon, put my name and who am I, and you can pick that up, whether it's for a kid or for yourself. Uh, But uh, let's, first of all, before I dive into Scripture, I want to give you sort of a historical background and context that we're talking about. How many of you love, like, charts and timelines? Let me see your hand. You're going to be in heaven the next few minutes, all right? If you don't like them, just daydream for about five minutes and we'll be back, all right? So when you interpret Scripture, it's important to ask yourself, when was it written? Who was it written to? What did it mean then? After you kind of work through that, then you ask the question, what does it mean now? Many times we totally skip that step and just act like this is written only for now, and we either can misinterpret things or miss some of the meaning. So let's go back a few thousand years. And uh, the Assyrian Empire existed until about 612 B.C., started when Israel was still a united kingdom. And they were replaced by the Babylonians, and they went from 612 to about 539. Notice as you're going towards the birth of Christ, you're kind of counting down to zero, so the numbers are getting smaller. The Persians overtook the Babylonians, and they ruled from 539 to 331. Then the Greek Empire took over until 146, and the Roman Empire existed from 146 until after the time of Christ. Now, let's drop Israel in that time frame. The United Kingdom of Israel had three kings, uh, Saul, David, and Solomon. 
Uh, they ruled and came to an end 931 B.C. at the foolish decision of Solomon's son. I'm not, I won't re-preach the sermon. And so they divided into two nations, the 12 tribes that were one nation. Uh, one tribe, Judah, was the southern tribe. The other nation, Israel, was the 11 northern tribes. And Israel fell at 722 B.C. to Assyria, you see here, uh, and they were exiled. They were deported. Judah, the southern one tribe, lasted till 586 B.C., and they were deported to Babylon, okay, under actually three deportations, 612, 606, and 597. The final fall of Israel was in 586 B.C. Now, as you look at that, you say, well, why did Judah last so much longer than Israel? Well, the Bible says that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And so all the kings of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, the Bible says, and they just rapidly crashed from 931 to 722. Uh, they led the people in a moral and spiritual demise. In Judah, there were several righteous kings who realized the sin of the nation and their own sin. They repented. God forgave them, and so they had that reprieve. Uh, and then another sin king would come, and they would sin. And so it was more of a, of a like this descent for Judah, and so it took longer for them to fall. In, from 605 to 536, primarily under the Babylonian Empire, a little bit of Persian, uh, is the, the, the ministry of Daniel. And we heard about him a few weeks ago. And then from 538 to 457 is Ezra. And Ezra was called to come and rebuild the people in Jerusalem during exile. Uh, a man named Zerubbabel did the construction project and rebuilt the temple. Ezra rebuilt the people spiritually as a priest. That's during the Persian Empire. Nehemiah, at 444, a little bit of overlap, felt called of God to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. Because it doesn't do any good to rebuild the temple. You can still be plundered by enemies. They had to rebuild the walls uh, for a defense. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, 400 B.C., and then there are four centuries of silence until the time of Christ. Now, we back up here. Esther, if you remember her at Mother's Day, if you weren't here, watch that sermon. Uh, an incredible hero. Saved the Jewish people when they were in an exile in Persia. Uh, saved them from being exterminated. And she became the wife of King Xerxes. All right? As the wife of King Xerxes, she had loads of influence in the nation. You can read about her influence in Persia. And then Xerxes' son, Artaxerxes, is the king during Nehemiah's reign. And it's likely, highly likely, that Esther, that Jewish woman, influenced her stepson, Artaxerxes, to make Nehemiah the cupbearer to the king because it was a very influential position in the king's court. You tasted the, the wine and the food to make sure it wasn't poison, but you had loads of access to the king. And Esther may have very well influenced him to put Nehemiah in that position. So with all that understood, let's now look at how uh, the Bible uh, frames all of this. And the message of the prophets that we have been saying for the last few weeks, turn to somebody and tell them, shape up or ship out. <laughs> all right, you love telling people that. The energy just goes up in the room and you get a chance to say that. Uh, let's talk about Malachi, first of all, the last book of the Old Testament and the message that he had. And I want to focus on uh, things that, you know, I don't know about you, but if I can learn from somebody else's mistake, I like to do that. If your pain can be my gain, I'm all about that. You know, no pain, no gain. I'd like to gain and the pain is yours. Some of you, some of us are guilty of what the Israelites were doing when Malachi said shape up. And their mindsets. The things we say, and the Bible says, out of the heart, 
the mouth speaks. So it's important the words we choose because it reflects attitudes and where our heart's at. And so Malachi is confronting that. And uh, in verse 1, if you, if point 1, if you have the app, you can follow along with us. In fact, this uh, diagram is in the notes in the app if you want to go to the CLC or go to the app store. First of all, number one, but you say. Everybody say, but you say. So that is God's phrase when he confronted the Israelites over and over again through Malachi. Let's look at chapter 1, verse 2 as a starter for that. God I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? And God's going to say over and over his position, and then, but you say, and the people will respond, well, how have you loved us? And then God's reply was, well, I chose you. You know, there was Jacob and Esau. I chose Jacob. Before that, I chose Abraham to be my people. And you are descendants of them. I chose you. You're my chosen people. Yeah, we don't feel so special. Chosen, but we're living in exile. Yeah, great. Thanks, God. It reminds me when my mom uh, worked, she worked for uh, the Daskal family that owned nursing homes in Cleveland. And Mr. and Mrs. Daskal uh, were Jews. And one time my mom told me of a conversation she had with Mrs. Daskal. But Mrs. Daskal, you're God's chosen people. And she goes, ah, chosen, you can have it. She said it with a bit of fatigue and weariness, and understandably so, because if she would do that, you would also see on her arm a tattoo that she never asked for. Her husband had one as well, and they got it from a Nazi concentration camp, and they survived. And see, what the misnomer we have is that to be chosen by God means that well, he picks you, then everything is great always. Fast forward to the New Testament, guess who the people of God are? All of us who have trusted Christ, and we get adopted into God's family. And so you didn't just decide to be a Christian. You, God chose you to be his child. The Holy Spirit spoke to you, stirred your heart, and you said yes. So as a person who was chosen by God, one of the worst assumptions you can go on is, okay, I'm chosen by God, I'm a Christian, and so that means life is problem-free, it always goes the way I want it to be, and there's no injustice. No, on the contrary, that's not the way it is. The people of Israel are very disillusioned because of their plight. God says, in verse 6 of that same chapter, he says, where is my honor? As a son honors their father, you should be honoring me. Where is my honor? You're defiling me, and you're defiling my altar. And then he goes, but you say, how have we defiled you? And how, is, how, have, we, how have we disdained your name? And, and God said, because you give me leftovers in worship. When it comes to a sacrifice, you're supposed to give me an unblemished lamb. You give me leftovers. And, and so he says, give that to your king. See what he would think. And you say, oh, how tiresome it is. I get so tired of having to go and do and da, 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 da. Boy, be careful if that's where you're at. In chapter 2, verse 13, God says, I no longer accept your offering. And I'm no longer moved by your tears or your prayers. Here's how self-centered we become. Well, how could God ever say that? If that's your knee-jerk response, you've forgotten who's serving who. We tend to think that God is just somehow in some needy fashion just waiting for any morsel of time, any attention you'll give him, and he's so happy, and any requests we give, he's just eager to answer that. Oh, God says, I've, I'm no longer moved by your tears. I don't answer your prayers. And they, but you say, for what reason? And God says, because I've seen how you've, basically you've, you've, disregarded my commandments because he says I'm a witness of how treacherous you are with the wife of your youth for I hate divorce. You're disregarding that. 
So if you're going to disregard what I tell you, then don't, don't come to me and cry to me and expect me to jump the moment that you're there. God says, you have wearied me with your words. I get so tired of what you say. And they go, how have we wearied you? But you say. And God says, you say, everyone who does evil is good. And where is the God of justice? It is so easy for us. It was easy for them then. Where's the God of justice? We're the chosen people, and yet we're living under the domination of Persia. All right, where is the God of justice? When we say that, we fail to understand, we fail to rest in the fact that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he is a God of love and mercy, yes, but he is also a God of justice. And to them, and fast forward, I can't help but while I look at the application there, I can help but make application now. When I look around this world, there is lots of injustice and it seems like people are getting away with it. And if I forget that there is a day of reckoning and there will be a judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne judgment and God will be just, when I forget that, I kind of tend to say, where's, where's God with all the justice, injustice that's going on? And then God said, you've turned aside from following me. Return to me. You've gone off. You're distracted. You no longer love me. Your heart is no longer with me. And they say, how shall we return? And then God says, you're cursed. Your whole nation is cursed. You're robbing me. How are we robbing you, you say? He says, you're robbing me of tithes and offerings. Now, how does not giving God, tithe means tenth. The Bible instructs us, Old Testament, affirm the new, to give God the first tenth of our income, offerings beyond that. How is, how is not giving God tithes and offerings drifting from him? Because what does he say? Return to me. Give me the first tenth and beyond. Because Jesus gives us a clue to this. In the New Testament, Jesus says, where your treasure is, what? Your heart will be also. Show me your financial transactions. I can tell you what you love. I can tell you who you love. No wonder, he says then, when it comes to them not giving, he says, return to me because your heart's not with me. Because you're, you're cheating me. You're giving me leftovers. You've rationalized why you don't need to give me all that you should. And it's because of the heart. It's a heart matter. And then he says, your words are arrogant against me. I don't know about you, but I'm going to pay close attention because I don't want to be arrogant to God. But you say, what have we spoken against you? And when you read it, there's this real snarky kind of defensiveness of the Israelites when you read their response. Because, I mean, they're taking God on. They've forgotten. This is the Almighty speaking to the prophet. But you say, how have we spoken against you? And, and God says, when you say, what profit is it to obey God? <laughs> what good does it do? I've pointed out many times, how many of us that are Christians know people who are not Christians who have more stuff, more money, seem more successful in, in just, you know, earthly terms? How many of us know those people? I know them. The reason we serve God is not because of what we call earthly success. It's not because of dollar signs and possessions. It's none of that. 
We serve God, and, and when, we, when we serve God and we compare ourselves to other people, that's when we make ourselves vulnerable. But when I realize I serve a God who's the God of eternity, the same yesterday, today, and forever, and when I jump to the New Testament and realize that Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, man, it isn't over until it's over. When I get to heaven, it's going to be amazing, the benefits of having served God. And so God, God basically just says, you know, you're wearying me. And so I've said that every book of the Bible has a theme, look forward to Jesus. Let's look at how Malachi does that. Malachi looks forward to Jesus. And it's really cool how he does it. In chapter 1, verse 1, verse 2 rather. Uh, actually, I'm going to go to 3, verse 1. Malachi says, God says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. Then there's a period there. Okay. That sentence needs to be taken in itself in its entirety. I'm sending a messenger. He will clear the way before me. Who is the messenger who is preparing the way for the Lord? Say John the Baptist. John the Baptist, prepare ye the way of the Lord. I'm sending a messenger. He'll clear the way of the Lord before me. And the Lord, next sentence, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. First sentence is the messenger John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. Second sentence, John the Baptist is not the messenger of the covenant. He's preparing the way for Jesus. Jesus is the second sentence. Jesus, talk about New Testament at the Last Supper. What did Jesus say? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is the messenger of the new covenant. So what Malachi is doing is he's looking forward to Jesus. He's looking forward to his first coming, all right, when he came as a baby away in a manger, right, his first coming, and his life here on earth. But then he's also looking at his second coming when you look at Malachi chapter 3, verse 2. It says, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, and against those who swear falsely, and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan, and those who turn aside the alien and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So how do you get that that's the second coming? Well, when Jesus comes the first time, born in Bethlehem, lives for 33 years, falsely accused, tortured to death, dies on the cross, buried in a tomb, raises from the dead. When he came that first time, he came to be your savior. In John chapter 3, verse 16, Jesus said to Nicodemus that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have everlasting life. Verse 17, he goes on to say that I did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through me might be saved. Jesus did not, Jesus came the first time to be your savior. The second time he comes, the second coming, the Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 19 that Jesus comes in righteousness, and in righteousness he judges. The first time he came to earth, he came to be your savior. The second time, he will be your judge. And so everyone here has a choice. What do you want Jesus to do? And what do you want him to be for you? Do you want him to be your savior or your judge? If you want him to be your savior, 
to save you from your sins and you ask him to forgive you, you say, what, you died on the cross to pay for sin, please apply that payment to my life. Forgive me, and he will. We, we read last week, he, he will make your sins as your white as snow, he said. But if you don't ask him to be your savior and you live without Christ in this life, you will stand before him, the Bible says, and he will be your judge. It'll be too late to be your savior. And the standard is God's perfection and your imperfection. I mean, I'm way down here somewhere. Probably can't drop my arm far enough. The difference between God's perfection and, and my imperfection, how do I possibly hope to spend eternity here with God? Because my imperfection can't commingle with his perfection. What makes up that difference is amazing grace and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so all of us who have asked Christ to be our Lord and Savior, if you haven't done that today, you need to do that because otherwise that chasm between God's perfection and your imperfection, you'll take to a place of judgment and you, Christ will judge you for your sins and you will be found lacking. And if you spend eternity without Christ in this life, you'll spend eternity without Christ in the next and that's hell. If you haven't made a decision to follow Christ, Make that decision today. And at the close of the service, we'll, we'll offer you that opportunity. So with that said, let's look at uh, the rewarding process that God often calls you to, and that is to return and rebuild. Return and rebuild. We're going to look at that in ancient times with Ezra and Nehemiah, but just to kind of jump fast forward a couple thousand years as I say that, many of you have areas of your life that need to be rebuilt. Today we often call them an extreme makeover. But there's a marriage or a relationship, a family relationship, uh, some sort of extended connection. Maybe it's your career or a business. Maybe it's your academic process that fell apart. Maybe it's ministry and there's nothing flowing from your life. You need to rebuild that. Whatever the case is, God is going to speak to you. Maybe it's your own health physically or mentally. But there's a rebuilding that needs to happen because there are areas of your life that are laying in ruins. And the problem is they've probably been that way a while. And the reason why they stay that way is because we, we tried and we got discouraged. The Bible says hope deferred makes the heart sick. So you get your hopes up and then it doesn't happen. And then you just get heart sick and you give up on it. And so let's look at the rebuild process that, that God calls us to. And uh, in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, so we're here in Persia, all right? We're in the book of Ezra. In order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, he was back here. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. So he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. How incredible is that, that this pagan king commissions Zerubbabel and Ezra to go rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And to those of you who are kind of freaking out about all the stuff that's happening politically in the world, understand that God can direct and take over uh, the heart and mind and decisions of any president, 
any prime minister, any emperor, any dictator, he chooses. He's not lost control. And so we trust him in that. Nehemiah, and, and this, this was Xerxes that we're talking about here. Nehemiah is now dealing with Artaxerxes. And you go to Nehemiah chapter 1. It says, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. I read that yesterday in our run-through. And I told Dirk, I said, was mom and dad sitting around going, what goes with Hakaliah? Uh, Nehemiah. Hey, hey. I don't know. But <laughs> now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. Nehemiah wept. He was broken. And uh, the Bible says he was so moved that he was in the king's presence and King Artaxerxes says, man, why are you sad? It's just sadness of heart. And Nehemiah was startled and afraid. Why? Because ancient kings literally believed that they were God. And what an insult it is to me if you're not in a good mood just being around me. It could mean imprisonment or off with your head if you aren't happy because you're with me. And Nehemiah says, well, why should I not be mourning, king, because the city of my fathers is desolated and the Gates are torn down and the walls are devastated. And so the king says, what do you want me to do? And so Nehemiah didn't rattle off solutions. He prayed, took some time, prayed about it, came back to the king. And he says, you know what, king? Would you give me a leave of absence to go and do a tour of the city to see the damage and to decide what needs to be done? The king gave him permission. Nehemiah goes and he inspects the walls of Jerusalem, comes back, and he then says to the king, okay, king, you know what? I, I need to rebuild God's calling me to do this. And so I need loads of supplies. I need timber. I need huge stones to rebuild. I need workers. I need uh, passports or visas to get through the land. All of that. And when it comes to uh, a restoration or a rebuilding process, there's sort of some steps that you see in both Ezra and Nehemiah. First of all, you need to identify the past sin or the bad decisions that led to the eventual ruin. So as we're looking back, let's look at the, the things we did wrong. Whether they were sinful or just bad decisions. And repent of them. The second thing is to believe that it can be rebuilt. When Nehemiah went to Jerusalem and saw the devastation, he didn't come back saying, there's no way we can do that. No, he came back with a sense of confidence, even though it was devastating. And so as you look back on whatever it is, as you examine what is, there, what is there in your life that needs to be rebuilt, have a sense of confidence that, okay, if God is in this, if God is for me, then who could be against me? And you fast forward to the New Testament, what did Mary say to the angel? And the angel said to Mary, all things are possible. And Mary said, okay, then let's go. Third, you have to anticipate the cost. Ezra and Nehemiah both did that. This isn't just going to happen. We've got to have supplies. We've got to have, and they thought through the whole process. And if you want to re redo a marriage, maybe you've got to invest in the cost of a counselor or whatever, the, you know, resources. You want to redo a career or redo an educational track. You have to invest in courses or whatever, get involved in ministry. I mean, I don't know what God's calling you to, to rebuild, but you have to, you have to count the cost and be willing to invest in that because it's not going to just all of a sudden happen. And then the fourth thing is you have to answer the call with yes. 
knowing that the rebuild takes work. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, it takes work. One of the things that we've done to help people in that rebuild process is we launched something called Celebrate Recovery to help people with hurts, habits, or hang-ups. And, and it's been going now for several months. It's amazing the testimonials we're hearing from that. It meets every Monday night at 6. We have some CR folk here. So if you'd like to join them, uh, it starts with dinner at 6, come into door 2, and then you'll make other friends that will help you through the rebuild process. Sometimes when you lose a loved one, one testimonial, a person said, CR has helped me get through the loss of my wife of 33 years. The healing from grief has been priceless to me. That's a rebuild in process. Another person, CR is a place where I can be open and not be judged by others, you people that are for you. Another person, coming to CR has given me a place to confess to others the sin in my life as well as my faith. The Bible says as we confess our sin to each other, we can be healed. There's something about saying, okay, there's wreckage in my life and I caused a bunch of it. I need to get that out there and now help me move forward. Another person said, CR has completely changed my life. I could never stay clean without adding Jesus to my recovery. Once I did that, my entire life changed. Praise the Lord. Another person said, Celebrate Recovery has given me a safe place to share to a group of people the addictions I have suffered from for, for, suffered from for decades. To speak aloud to the group makes the reality of my issues manageable and has allowed me to release my past to move forward in the future. And I can only imagine for Nehemiah and for Ezra as they thought about, you know, when you're, when you're a slave, when you're in exile, and you're living at the service of another nation, another people who are, they've, they've dominated you, and you hear about the temple, you hear about the walls, you kind of keep that as a quiet disappointment and grief and shame and heartache. And when you tell the king, you know what, king, the walls are torn down, I need to go see it, now I need supply. When you start to verbalize that, something wells up inside of you. And when you look back, you know what? We need to deal with our marriage. I got to look at my career. I got to look at this next season of my life because I feel like my dreams are done. Now what's next? Or I need to redo my educational path or my preparation. Or I need to look at my own physical health or my mental and emotional. I need to rebuild that. God needs to help me restore that. There's something about talking about that that gets our hopes up. And then what we do is because we don't, boy, you know what it feels like when you get your hopes up and it doesn't happen. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. So we pull back. No, I'm going to encourage you today to keep on going and say, okay, God, let's get into the restoration process. And when you do that, in Ezra, I won't read the verse, but they had to start with the foundation repair that was necessary. They had to repair the foundation of the temple. And some of you got to go back and, and do some do-overs in some very important ways. Not always, but sometimes you got to go back to the very big. Oh, let's get that right before we move forward. You have to restore the foundation. And then a couple of keys that Nehemiah talked about. In chapter 2, verse 18, he told the people, put your hands to the work. And in chapter 4, he says the people had a mind to work. So as you're already thinking about that area in your life, and I can tell you if God's talking to you about it because you're trying to say, no, not that. No, not that. No, he doesn't mean that. No, not that. No, not that. If you're de defending why it's not that, it's that. <laughs> and so you have to, okay, it's going to take work. You have to have a mind to work. You have to be possibility oriented. And you have to be willing to put your time and your effort into it. Have a hand to work. And then the last point, the Bible is always realistic uh, in its supernatural nature. And that is... 
Expect opposition. Expect opposition. And for this, we'll go to the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 6. Because in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, the Apostle Paul reminds us, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of its darkness, darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's a spiritual battle. Way back the Garden of Eden, from the time humanity was created, we have an adversary. He's called the accuser. And Satan does not, the last thing Satan wants you to do is hear this message and then put two plus two together and think of an area in your life that needs to be rebuilt or restored and say, huh, what if God wants to do that? That's the last thing he wants. The last thing he wants is for, is for you to listen to the way the people of Israel were confronted by Malachi saying, shape up or ship out and go, whoa, I kind of think that way. I'd be kind of saying, ah, what a pain it is, follow God, do all this, give to God, serve God, what good does it do? I've had that attitude. The last thing Satan wants you to do is to realize, whoa, those are the things that I say and think because it might bring change. The last thing he wants you to do is to realize, whoa, I haven't asked Jesus to be my Savior, which means I will eventually face him as my judge. I don't want that. I want to ask him to be my Savior now. It's the last thing Satan wants you to hear, much less act upon. And so you have to expect opposition. Nothing good comes easy. And in Nehemiah chapter 4, you can read, or in Ezra chapter 4, sorry, you can read about the opposite. I won't go to all the verses, but man, the people of the land that surrounded them discouraged the Jews. So you can't do this. What do you think you're doing? Rebuilding that temple. No, nah, forget it. It's too far gone. Let it go. Uh, that's, in, that's in Ezra. And then they leveled false accusations against them. Reminds me of Jesus saying, when people say all kinds of evil against you falsely, they were doing that against the Jews. And then they even appealed to, to Xerxes and said, you know what, these Jews are trying to have, to have a rebellion. They're trying to revolt, even though they weren't. And so Xerxes says, okay, time out. And he issues an edict. What I said we're going to do, we're not going to do that anymore. And it wasn't until Darius, a new king, took over that they restarted the rebuild process. Nehemiah, same thing. When they went to rebuild the walls, there were two diplomats, foreign diplomats, Tobiah and Sanballat, that kind of led the charge. And theologians say Sanballat is like a, a symbolic representation of how Satan works, just pummeling them to try to stop the work. They made fun of them. They, uh, they saw you feeble Jews. You don't have the resources. You, you don't have the goods. You don't have what it takes. And boy, you got that thought about whatever area in your life, oh, who do I think I am to, that God can redo that, that God can rebuild that? And, and, and how many of you ever tried to redo something and you, you messed up along the way? Let me see our hands. He's great to remind you of that. Well, you messed up, you're going to do it again. And you probably will do it some again. Those feeble Jews, well, you can do it for yourself. They question their motives, selfish motives. You can do it in a day, question the timing, how long you think it's going to take. You know, if a fox jumps on that wall, it's going to fall down. You're not, you're not wall builders. What do you think you're doing? I mean, they, they pummeled them with accusations, tried to discourage them. And in, in verse 5, Nehemiah says they demoralized the builders. He knew how dangerous that was because when we lose the heart for it, over time we tend to lose the passion and the effort and the try. Then they tried to scare them. 
And in chapter 4, verse 12, uh, some of the Jews that weren't involved, that didn't have the courage, said, they're going to kill us. They're going to kill us. They're going to kill us. It says 10 times, they're going to kill us. 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 They're going to kill you. They're going to kill you. They're going to kill us. How many of you know if you hear discouragement long enough, often enough, from the right people, it can wear you down? And that's what happened there. Oh, and, and all of us have naysayers in our life. And if we listen too much, you can listen and learn, but don't listen and take it to heart and be discouraged. And so Nehemiah saw their fear. So you know what Nehemiah said in response to their fear? He didn't say, don't listen to them. Don't know. He didn't say that. He took their attention to something greater than their fear. And Nehemiah said, don't be afraid. Remember, the Lord is great and awesome. There's reason to be afraid. There's reason to be reluctant. But God is awesome. God is magnificent. And so trust him with this process. And in that, he told them as well in chapter 8, verse 10, do not be grieved. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And you know what? In Nehemiah chapter 6, the people rebuilt the walls in a phenomenal 52 days. I mean, they even had to go through a season where they had a brick in one hand and a weapon in the other. I mean, it, was, it got that bad. But they had a, heart, a mind to work, and the people put their hand to the work, and they'd finish the rebuild process. And I'm here to tell you that some of you have a rebuild process ahead of you, and you've tried before, you got your hopes up before, you've left the rubble there, you just have to live with it. No, if God is stirring your heart, say yes to the call today. Okay, God, this time, this season, now, I'm going to trust you for a rebuild that goes beyond anything that I saw you do or I did with you before. And so today is the day of decision. Some of you, when I talked about the attitudes that Malachi confronted, that's where your, your heart, your mind, your mouth has been. And God's saying, hey, shape up. Listen to the attitudes. Listen to the... Uh, that's coming out of you, where does that say your heart's at? Let's do a heart check. Some of you are here, and it's happened to every service. Some of you are here, and, and you've not asked Christ to be your Savior, and you realize now is the time to decide that because I don't want him to be my judge. Ask Jesus to be your Savior because you need that. And many of you, again, based on the last two services, many of you, God is speaking to you about an area in your life that needs to be rebuilt, you know it. And it's stirring you right now. And he's calling you, just have the courage and say yes to the hope to start the process. And brick by brick, board by board, I'll work with you and we'll rebuild that. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me if you would. And I'm going to ask you to do something courageous. It's not as courageous as going back to Jerusalem in the middle of Persian-dominated territory and rebuilding a temple or walls. But they had to take a step of faith, and I'm going to invite you to do the same thing. And we've done it all weekend long, and lots of people have said yes. I'm going to invite you to step out in a moment from where you are. If God's stirring you in any of those areas, God, I need a heart check. I need you to be my savior or I need you to help me with a rebuild in my life. 
I'm going to invite you to step off from where you are and just come and find a place to pray and turn this altar into your personal altar. And when you come, just tell God why you've come. If you're coming to pray to accept Christ, to make him your savior, not your judge, if you want to come over to this area, Pastor Shane's going to be over here. He's got a black shirt on, and he'll be happy afterwards to kind of help you explain to you, okay, what do you do next? Because after you accept Christ. But when you come, one last thought. Coming forward to an altar and having a prayerful commitment doesn't finish the task or the journey. It starts it. And you have an accuser who does not want you to say yes to rebuild or to Christ as your Savior and following Him or none of that. And so shortly after you get off your knees and head out to your car, he's going to try to take aim at you and say, not now, forget it, give up, that was foolish, you, you should have known better. And you just, you just stay faithful in the decision you're making today. Because today you're stepping out and making a decision. Today you're going to come forward. You're going to kneel here and say, God, I kneel before you. I humble myself. That's what the Israelites weren't in Malachi. I humble myself to you. And, and you tell them why you've come. And I ask for your grace. I ask for your help, for your forgiveness, whatever. I ask you to be with me and guide me step by step. If God is stirring your heart and you want that redo today, step out from where you are right now as the team plays. You accept Christ. Step out from where you are right now. You need God to transform you. Step out from where you are right now. No more excuses. No more debating. No more who cares what everybody else says or thinks. Just come as we sing.